Aloha and welcome to the Woman on Fire podcast. We are your hosts, Jamie and Daniela. We're happy to be here with you Aloha. guys <laughs> Yeah, welcome to episode yes, number indeed. two. Yeah, we have <laughs> an email set up just for our podcast so we can communicate with all you amazing listeners. And it is womanonfirepodcast at gmail.com. Nice and easy. <laughs> so, yeah, you are welcome. Yeah, to- so please send your questions, comments. Yeah. Uh, any reflections on what you hear us talk about? Any stories that you wish to share with us? Any topics you want us to dive into? We're happy to hear from you as we grow in this very new podcast adventure for us. (laughs) So for today, we have a topic that is very dear to our hearts, and it is the topic of midwifery regulations, and we will be particularly focusing on how that has played out in Hawaii and where that is here, just because otherwise that's a huge conversation. (laughs) Um, So yeah, we're going to focus on that because that's where we are. So this is a very big conversation. It's multifaceted. It can be very controversial. (laughs) Um, And I'm going to, you know, keep that in mind as we navigate this conversation with each other and with you. And I just want to preface this whole thing by saying that I stand where I stand in my perspectives of it, and I know lots of people that are on a completely different spectrum of where they see this issue. Um, That being said, I do really hope that this conversation we're going to share with you today can be one that ah, is received with the love that it's being created with, so that it can be really approachable for others that don't have the same beliefs that we do. Um, And even if you don't come out of this thinking the same way we do, because that's not necessarily the idea, but I just want this to be something that feels approachable to people for the sake of bridging walls. I'm sorry. Uh, See, not bridge. We need bridges, not walls. That's my intention I'm going to hold during this. So yeah, as we talk about things that we all see differently and just practice being able to stand with each other, even though we have different beliefs. And yeah, so in honor of celebrating our diversity and being able to still be with each other and coexisting, because that's what we are trying to strive for. Um, So yeah midwifery and regulations in Hawaii. So we're going to start with a little foundational work. So we're all on the same page as far as understanding some basic stuff like midwives. There's a lot of different types of midwives. And that's kind of why regulation wants to come in. Uh, So direct entry midwives is one category that you may often hear about. And 
that is an umbrella term for a few different types of midwives. There are CPMs, which are certified professional midwives. They are the only ones that are required to train in the home birth setting, and they're often the ones in the home birth setting. That is a national certification, which is often what is being used as the standard for state licensure. And then there's CNM, Certified Nurse Midwives, and it's kind of what it sounds like. They first become nurses, and then they do often a, a master's program in midwifery, and they work in hospitals usually. There are a few out there that attend home births, but that's not the norm. And then we have CMs, Certified, no, yeah, Certified Midwives. And they are not nurses, but they do have some sort of bachelor's degree first, and then they go on to study midwifery. Um, I think usually in a master's program too, I believe. So, yeah, it's a master's of science of midwifery. Yeah, and they are not licensed in all states. Um, I think They're licensed in very few states. Yeah, um, it is growing though. And they, again, like CNMs, they are kind of parallel to each other. Uh, they tend to work in the hospital setting, not so much the home birth. Um, so they're more on the medical spectrum model of care. And then under still, oh, I put CNMs under the direct entry midwife category, didn't I? It's not, by the, sorry, I need to clarify that. Um, the direct entry midwives are pretty much all midwives that are not nurse midwives. And that includes traditional, cultural, um, community midwives. So pretty much all midwives that, acts, that have entered the midwifery field without going through nursing first, which is really how midwives have been for most of our human existence. <laughs> so yeah, that's a good rundown. Yeah, those are all the different types of midwives really in a very condensed fashion. <laughs> and yeah, then that can segue into just getting a general idea of how Hawaii, Hawaii's history and midwifery regulation has kind of Mm, transformed here. Uh, maybe Jamie can run us through this next foundational point that we want to make sure we all kind of just know for background. Sure. So, um, so the history of midwifery in Hawaii is that um, there, you know, that um, we the Hawaiians had their own traditions and birthing practices. Um, there was colonization and physicians that came in and midwifery was actually um, made illegal. And then they legalized um, certified nurse midwives. They gave them some, some uh, licensure and by and large in Hawaii, um, certified nurse midwives practice in hospital there are a handful that 
um, less than a handful, like you can count on one hand, the number of nurse midwives doing home deliveries in Hawaii. Uh, there are none on the island of Oahu, which is where we live. And then uh, in the late 90s, there was a change in the law that left a loophole to make um, community-based births attended by um, midwives um, legal again. And so the past six years or so, the, the, um, the nurse midwifery medical model of care has been making the attempt to close that loop and make it so all midwives practicing in the state of Hawaii are licensed and regulated and it is um, mandated. So that's kind of the, the where we came to about six years ago, seven years ago. Um, some bills were starting to be introduced to close that um, gap. But in the time that midwifery was not illegal, there was a nice little flourish of diversity and remembering and uh, resurgence of this more traditional type of practice of midwifery. Um, and I just have to also state that the CPM licensure and certificate came around in the 90s as well. And so that is sort of a new type of midwifery practice. And it came in the, um, with the motivation to have recognition um, by and large for midwives who didn't have the medical background training, but they had the apprenticeship model training. So that was kind of where CPM started. And um, that some of the founders of the CPM certificate program actually live scattered around um, the different islands here which is pretty fascinating and um, some of them are actually declining in recertification because of what has become of that um, pathway that now it is partially apprenticeship based but um, the validity of it is only um, justified in a lot of places where Oh, hold on. I'm sorry. I have to answer this. <laughs> All right. Sorry for the skip in the programming there, but um, got a call about a labor. So, of course, you got to answer those phone calls. So, anyhow, back on track. Um, we were discussing the history of um, midwifery in Hawaii and how we came to this place where these bills started being introduced to close the loopholes. And um, what was really fascinating is that every year they introduced these bills um, to regulate, um, have mandatory licensure for midwives in Hawaii that um, massive amounts of people would show up. The first year, there was like 300 families from all islands that came to the capital to stand with um, freedom of choice with midwifery care. And that was really very impressive and pretty shocking because there's on average about 300 home deliveries or um, community-based births in Hawaii every year. So it's not like there's a massive amount of people, um, 18,000 
plus births per year in Hawaii. And we're talking about 300 who are choosing to um, birth in this other paradigm. <laughs> so very fast out to support their community midwives and how important it was to, for them to protect um, their right to choose who can attend them. Um, and in the years following, still there would be many, many dozens um, of people that would come. The, this last year we had a big rally with the news involved and everything. Um, yet despite the fact that two thirds of um, the consensus or the testimonies that were provided by the people of Hawaii um, in opposition to mandatory regulation and legislation of midwives, these this this last year, um, they did manage big pharma and hospital corporation sort of pushed hard enough, lobbied hard enough to get this um, to pass through, but not without still having a bit of a place to work with. <laughs> for us midwives who and families who um who really don't agree with mandatory licensure um and regulation and the reason why is back to that um that reason for why even some of those who created this cpm certificate are now having ethical dilemmas about recertifying because it has really taken, um, you know, when you want to have um, recognition in an academic world, you have to also um, prove your own worth through academics. Um, and um, so that has kind of become the, the norm now. So in Hawaii, even if, um, folks were CPM trained, if they didn't have this certain certificate through the CPM um, licensure program, if they didn't have everything completed by the beginning of 2020, then all anyone who had been traditionally trained um, apprenticeship model um, now does not qualify for the licensure either. So it's very exclusive, this CPM certificate um, that they have passed is mandatory um, education through a MEEK accredited school. Um, the other pathway for certification is been diminished in Hawaii and no longer can you apply for it if you don't have, um, if you hadn't already had it by January 1st, 2020, which was only six months, less than six months from when the law passed. So, um, so there's a lot of things that are really jacked about this thing. There's no grandmothering in, even if you qualify, you know, there's a lot of folks who didn't qualify for the licensure, even if they have, you know, I myself have 10 years experience, um, and hundreds of families that I've been able to serve. But I also stand in the, in the position that I don't actually want that license personally, um, because I don't feel that by and large, it serves the family in front of me. It serves sort of a greater industrialized um, model of care, which is largely 
what people are trying to move away from when they're choosing out of hospital um, or community-based births. So, mm -hmm. yeah, and I want to yeah. highlight, you know, it's like, great. So Jamie just shared with us her perspectives, her beliefs and her stance on the matter and great. Now, the issue in, for me in this whole conversation we're having is that, you know, people have their own unique perspectives but feel, many feel a need to have to make their beliefs be the mandatory way for everyone to be. So as in this whole conversation, I think that's really the major uh, problem <laughs> uh, that I see really. And really, you know, you're talking about all the people that would come out to the hearings throughout the years in opposition, flying in from all the islands and, something that I always heard repeated, but because it wasn't just midwives going over there defending our rights to be midwives, <laughs> um, but it was the families, because that's what it's really about. It's the families, the moms, the birthing individuals, you know, it's them. And what I always heard, which is so important here, is people were asking for their options to be respected. They wanted options, and they wanted this to be recognized as a personal choice this being people choosing how they birth who they birth with uh in what context and what culture do they get to birth in right and that's what like the two main things i kept hearing that it was about right because it's not about saving the midwives necessarily it's really preserving birth options and Letting this be a personal choice, regardless of what other people think is the best thing for others or for themselves. So, yeah, choices. Um, yeah, that that sort of was the unified message is that, um, you know, it's not that we don't want to um, celebrate this license for those who want it, but we also don't want that to be the only option. Um, that's what families were saying is that, you know, the midwife that has caught my three babies or her philosophy on birth or the, my family's philosophy on birth, you know, should not be diminished in order to raise up someone else's belief system and that it's their right to choose that. And we should offer this certificate and this license for those people who want that kind of midwife, but not in exchange for the kind of birth that my family is seeking, or, you know, I'm saying my meaning the general population that was showing up and saying, you know, great. And still, <laughs> we still also want this. Yeah. Right. These uh, newer and, accreditations. Oh, sorry. Well, yeah, these go ahead. types of midwives, the CPMs and the CNMs, you know, those are branches from an ancient tree trunk and roots of midwifery, right? Like you mentioned, um, CPMs kind of came about in the 90s, CNMs maybe shortly before, uh, but midwifery has been around for much longer. So they, you know, those branches get to stand upon um, you know, these ancient uh, trees and roots and the shoulders of 
non-licensed, non-certified, non-regulated midwives. And again, I think it's totally okay and great and wonderful that people want to grow into these new branches. I just want us to find a way that it can be done without paving over and trying to disregard and ignore and discredit and devalue um, and oppress um, you know, the woman that came before us, really, that are the reason we all get to be where we're at. So that's what I want us to kind of bear in mind is these different types of midwives that gave <laughs> rise to the next. Um, so, and that was spoken oh, yeah, to, yeah. that was spoken to at some of these hearings that, um, even, uh, the Hawaiian demographic would come and say, you know, that's great that you have written an exemption for me. However, um, my culture has basically lost all their practices by decolonization. And the only way for us to remember is to have these midwives who, um, who can help us remember and, um, and reclaim these traditions because by and large that, that it's been wiped out and the only way to reclaim it is to honor maybe midwives who aren't Hawaiian in particular, <laughs> but they have these traditional and cultural practices that can help shape how we rebuild our um, our traditions. And when you wipe out those midwives and make them medicalized training midwives, then how can we remember? Right. So uh, the pros and cons of licensure just to get some insight on you know all sides of the argument if you will um because i i remember hearing someone say once like well if you qualify for a license why wouldn't you just get one you know just in their world it really just genuinely did not make sense why someone would choose not to license, especially if they could so easily qualify. Um, not that being able to qualify is easy in Hawaii, given the lack of access to midwifery schools here. But um, yeah, because there's people that very intentionally choose to not license. And there are families and women who very intentionally seek out a non-licensed midwife. So I want to try to make sense of that for people like, why in the world would somebody specifically find, try to find someone who's not licensed, right? So um, maybe we can jump into the pros of licensure, since I think that's where most people genuinely or generally stand. Um, FYI, fun fact, I kind of stood on <laughs> that spectrum at one point too, before I had attended births, before I had really met any of the birth workers before I had talked to the community really that was actually living these experiences and making these personal choices you know before I met the people who whose lives were actually impacted by home birth culture and potential regulations I had made a decision <laughs> um, about what I thought was best for them and then I realized how problematic that was um, but I did think that licensure was best 
right on the surface level of being introduced to the conversation and some of the reasons I thought, which are some of the reasons that most people tend to highlight as a reason to push regulation um, is, well, one is insurance, right? If we license midwives, then we can get insurance to cover it. And that makes it just more accessible for people. And the midwives just can be more uh, just available and serve more families, right? Sure, in theory, that sounds great. But what does that actually mean? <laughs> um, well, for one, just because someone or a field is licensed does not automatically mean that insurance is down to cover it, right? We have um, massage therapists and chiropractors and even naturopathic physicians and um, manicurists <laughs> who are licensed, but that doesn't mean insurance is gonna cover it, right? Um, getting insurance to cover health providers is a whole nother beast in it of itself. And I think that's a piece that isn't often recognized. I didn't know that because, I mean, if you don't spend your time, make, you know, uh, in this world of health care, then how would you possibly know how health insurance works? Not that I really know how they work, but... <laughs> um, but health insurance also dictates what you can and can't do because it's um, because they're the ones paying for it. And so that is one of the sticky things about insurance. And you don't get to decide how much you will um, get paid or um, that sort of thing. So there's a lot of sticky things around insurance that, yeah, it's covered, but who, you know, how does that affect your midwife? How does that affect the decisions that you get to make? Because most insurance is based on risk, which is why some hospitals you can't have VBACs in or why the art of breach delivery is disappearing at rapid pace. Um, even vaginal twin births with double vertex babies, you know, a lot of things are um, in place because of hospital policy, which is dictated by insurance and malpractice um, things. So um, exactly. that is, yeah, so that's, I guess, that's a pro and a con within itself, mm -hmm. right? Okay, insurance covers it, but now my midwife gets paid a fraction of the amount, which means that she has to see more people in order to maintain her practice, which means she has less time for me um yeah mm -hmm. exactly so, so insurance, that's the insurance piece. but at what cost <laughs> yeah totally the breach thing i mean there's so many well maybe not so many but there are some you know older ob's that were trained in how to support vaginal breach births in a time where the hospital system wasn't so deathly afraid of them and so they have the skills to do it but many of them don't offer that option. They just go to the uh, C-section default, you know, standard for everyone, not because they don't know how or because they don't feel comfortable supporting a vaginal birth, but because hospital policies or, and actually, um, their liability insurance, like you mentioned. So we are in a position where uh breach 
uh, vaginal breach births are not really being supported. Not so much because some OBs don't have the skills, but more so because there's a fear of liability and, you know, ultimately losing your license in your practice. But because of that, we are also in a position where OBs in medical school at large aren't really being taught how to support a vaginal breech birth. So now most OBs really just don't actually have that skill. So where has that left society? Well, at least in the U.S., the cesarean rate for breech presentations is around 80%. Again, not because some people don't well it's now it's a mix now because there's no some people don't have the skill most people are just definitely afraid health insurance isn't really gonna back you up on those decisions a lot of the time Um, liability fields hospital policies right so this is just painting the picture of what can happen when people that are not the ones actually birthing start making decisions and policies and laws about what can and cannot happen and what can and cannot be essentially taught and learned and passed on and supported um, for the community. Well, and based largely on um, relative risk versus actual risk, Um, you know, a lot of policy and insurance decisions are made based on the lowest common denominator. So assuming that people are uneducated, that they don't have the time, information, skill set in order to make these decisions clearly. And so, um, so somebody else is going to make them for you. Right. So insurance, yeah, might potentially cover it, although not automatically right off the bat, bat and at what cost. So there's that huge piece. <laughs> um, another... Well, you get a lot of people that decide to have their babies in the hospital because insurance pays for it all, but then they walk out, you know, feeling gypped out of their experience. Right, right. Because you get what you pay for. You get what you pay for. Correct. Yeah. So that, that you know, it is heartbreaking how many people we do have come into our lives seeking midwifery care and just home birth support because they did go the hospital route the first time just because just in case um, because just because well that's what health insurance covered and that's just what you do and then they learn so much along the way but they have to learn it in a really rough way a lot of the time Um, which you know maybe they wouldn't have gone there if midwifery was covered by insurance but I guess maybe that's the point, you know, are we only doing things just because they're covered by insurance? And I know I don't, Um, you know, I want to go and get my supplements, my herbal supplements, even though they're not covered by health insurance, but I'll go get them because that's my way of taking care of myself and my health. There's an example (laughs) of, you know, not letting health insurance dictate our lives, but I get it. It can be a helpful piece for someone that really doesn't have the financial means to take care or pay for midwifery care. And my midwives do need to get paid, but then if insurance is covering it, they're not going to get paid that much anyways. <laughs> so, you know, that's not perhaps the um, best solution for everyone involved anyways. 
Okay. So that's a big one. Many traditional midwives, because they don't have a lot of overhead, a lot of traditional midwives are willing to do sliding scale and meet and and payment plans and things like that versus where if if you are billing insurance, your price is your price. You can't fluctuate on it. Um, And so that is a, that's a big thing too. So in a practice that isn't based on um, insurance billing, you know, where some can pay the full amount they can and where others can't, they cannot. And there's sort of some wiggle room in either direction. So the midwife has a little bit of flexibility to say, like, maybe I do um, X amount of, of sliding scale deliveries per month or quarterly or whatever in order to make sure I can maintain my lifestyle but people can still get what they need and want you know so yeah totally Uh, I know uh, Marin from Indie Birth she has a podcast where she talks about this in particular because this really is a big conversation that deserves a lot more time too it's just you know, just because health insurance covers it doesn't necessarily mean you have to do it. They'll cover an ultrasound every time you go in. Does that mean you should get one every time you go in? You know, so just, you know, food for thought. <laughs> um, well, and who's to say you aren't worth it? <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, are you, aren't, are you and your baby worth three or $5,000? I mean, exactly exactly there's definitely how much was your television what's your car payment like all these things you know that this is this lasting impression that it's not it's not and people poo poo home birth because oh they're just going for the experience but that's not the full picture Mm, wow yeah exactly but I think that every woman and her baby are worth at least $5,000, you know, oh, to, yeah, <laughs> to exactly. get to choose and make decisions and not be coerced. And... Bingo. Yes. An analogy I use often is like marriage. None of that is covered. A wedding, right, is covered by health insurance. But most people, if given the chance, are going to jump at it to make it this extravagant experience and have every detail of it be planned out for months i mean there are tv shows of people planning out every detail and losing their minds about you know it it becomes really stressful so i'm not saying make it stressful but you know how invested are people in creating their weddings and the dress and the cake and the centerpieces and all the things right like people don't want to compromise as much as possible on this. They want it to be an amazing experience for them and all the people they love because they're so stoked. They're marrying the person they love and it's an amazing thing to celebrate. And I say, great, I agree. Now imagine if we took that same approach to birth and didn't just compromise and just recognize it as the epic day or days <laughs> that it is of just a pivotal time in people's lives, transformational moments, how deep and personal of an experience that it is and how much it is worth to figure out the financial means as possible, <laughs> right? You know, I've definitely seen people like, I don't know how I'm going to get the money. I don't really have that 
kind of money, but I'm going to figure it out because this is what I believe in and this is what I want, period. Just send the story and then they figure it out, you know? Um, so, yeah, exactly. I think there's definitely some priority assessment at large that can be really helpful um, for people. And then there's a whole... Well, just like a... Yeah, I just want yeah. it to be such a heavy sticking point of like insurance dictating people's lives. But yeah. And just like a wedding, I mean, this is a rite of passage as well. And it's a celebration and, you know, kind of speaking back to the like, oh, home birth people just want the experience. But there is actually something very proven about the midwifery model of care. And that is that if you feel seen, if you feel heard, if you feel respected, then you have less fear. And if you have less fear, then your birth goes smoother. <laughs> so mm -hmm. that's why the midwifery of model, model of care works is because it is about the experience and the experience is what makes it safer because we trust each other. We trust that our mothers and our fathers and our, you know, our families are being honest and that they're taking care of themselves in between their appointments. And then when they are diving deep into that place of bringing their child in, they feel like they're not going to be challenged and coerced. They're going to be challenged because bringing a baby in is no joke, but they're not going to be challenged in their belief systems as much as, as maybe being presented when you walk into a hospital where people don't know you and you have to face these protocols or even home when the licensure or is too restricted um, that midwives hands are, are tied. Um, I think by and large that many people who go into healthcare really think that they're going to go in and they're going to make a big difference and they're going to, you know, they're going to do their very best and then they get bound by the insurance, right? And then suddenly they don't get to practice in the way that they envisioned that they were going to practice. Um, so, you know, I kind of laugh when they say, oh, home birth people just want the experience. And I, it, and I, because it's, it is not untrue <laughs> that they mm -hmm. want the experience of healing and it doesn't make it less safe because you want to have a good experience. Yeah, that is really <laughs> funny in some twisted way of like, yeah, they just want the experience of being respected and not coerced and manipulated and fear mongered. <laughs> yes, I, I guess, yes, they do want that experience. Is that, is that too much to ask for? I guess so. Okay. But yeah, oh, goodness. Yeah, the experience is worth it. Um, I mean, if you believe it is. And uh, if it's your if truth, you then freaking yes. go for it. Go figure it out. Find the midwives. Most are willing to work with you in some way or another to figure it out, to support you in the ways that you know you deserve to be. So let's not let insurance be the end-all be-all. Um, yeah, it has its place, but it's, yeah, it's maybe not as big of a pawn as it really seems to be. Um, but it is used in that way. So another pawn that has been used to push midwifery regulation is, um, well, I guess labs is a thing, you know, having yeah. access. Well, safety, mm -hmm. because you can guarantee that your person serving you has jumped through the hoops of the hierarchy in order to prove to you that they have this baseline of education. Um, and 
you know, it's like everything. You can give guidelines, but you can't regulate safety. Um, and when it comes to spontaneous birthing practices, you definitely can't regulate, you know, it's, it's, it is organic and it is spontaneous. So the best thing you can do is hold the space and recognize when something is abnormal. So, um, you know, I think that that's something too, because people go through all this training and hypothetically they're prepared, but then when they, if they've never seen or managed a hemorrhage or resuscitation, or if they have never um, really been in those shoes, then how, I, I love the, the, the quote or the, the theory that, you know, the person who graduates last in their graduating class as a physician is still a physician, even if they just barely scraped by, right? So, um, so one, how do you put it into practice? And experience really does count um, because you know whether you can feel your feet on the ground or not. And um, also just because you think you know something, you also have to be very, very aware that there's always an infinite amount more to know. And especially when it comes to the mysteries and magic of bringing life through, um, it's not straightforward. Even in a controlled situation like a C-section, it's not, it's not always straightforward. People's bodies are different. They react differently to different things. And so, so the safety thing, the pro is that you know that your midwife has a base level of education and training, but then, but then that's it. That's, that's what you know. Mm -hmm. right. But is any of that in practice going to be useful if they've never, you know, depending on how they've practiced or how they've been trained to even practice? Yeah, right. That's what, that's the main thing, right? We need licensure. We need mandatory licensure for midwives, for the safety of our community, moms and babies. Uh, and that's how we'll get it by making sure that they're licensed. And if they're licensed, then we know that they've jumped through a particular set of hoops and proved their ability to do that. And, um, have, you know, it lets the community know, oh, this person has made all the right decisions. So they probably have good judgment. Um, <laughs> and again, that's fine to have that option available, but to have it be the only option is the the issue really. Um, so we know that licensure doesn't necessarily equal safety or better outcomes or improved safety, but that's how they make it seem. That's how they sell it and frame it to the public at large is if we license, then we can ensure safety. But really what it is, is more like an illusion, a facade. It's a feeling of safety, regardless of the actual outcome. So we can look at the U.S. as an example of, okay, great. We have many birth institutions, the hospitals with all the licensed and uh, regulated physicians and practitioners. And then you and the can protocols and the bells uh -huh. and whistles and totally. all the things. All the things. So many things. Everything. <laughs> and... Look at the statistics that we're left with from all of that, right? As far as neonatal and 
maternal mortality and morbidity rates, well, we have the highest out of the developed world, right? In comparison to other developed countries, right? Um, yeah, our outcomes are nothing to be proud of. So when they keep telling us license shirts for your safety, that'd be great if it were true, it'd be great if it were that simple, but just spoiler alert, it's not. Um, <laughs> it's not. Yeah. So. Well, in the long arm of the medical community now reaching into your, the, the, the family's bedrooms and personal choices, when really by and large people started stepping out of these practices because they were feeling traumatized or because they were being experimented on or because they, um, they just really felt like that maybe we're going astray with this normal physiological process versus an actual health condition. So, um, you know, and I think that that kind of leads us into the next pro of what people see as a pro is that you'll be recognized by the medical community and you'll get, um, you know, your, your education means something. Mm -hmm. And, um, I just hate to say it, but ACOG, regardless of licensure across almost all states in Hawaii, or including Hawaii, um, many, many states in, in the United States now have mandatory licensure. And um, by and large, anybody choosing a home birth, whether you have a license or an unlicensed practitioner, um, you're still going to, ACOG still thinks that home birth is negligent and inappropriate because they own birth in America. And if you can get away with having happier outcomes and less traumatized people and you have less training and you have less equipment and you have, then that makes them really have to look at themselves and what they're doing. And so if they can stifle this 2% of people who are choosing something else, then they can kind of remain on top. And I'm, I, that's totally my personal opinion on that, but I also just think that by and large, um, you know, we now have licensure across many, many states. And if you talk to midwives when they transport, they're not, they're still not received well. Even if it's a non-emergent situation, mom wants to come in and get an epidural mm -hmm. or we're transferring because this mom lost a, a fair amount of blood and she needs to be here now. And then um, the midwives get shunned and shamed for even attempting to have a baby outside of their parameters. And it is often actually the medical community that goes after the licenses of home birth community based practitioners. It's not usually the families that, um, that are seeking redemption um, because the families actually have a relationship with that, that care provider and, and they know their responsibility and their role that they had in making the decisions as well. And I think that's one of those things that it's hard for um, the medical paradigm to, to see that because so much of the medical paradigm is um, based in um, malpractice, worrying about covering your ass. Um, and so, which is why things are not allowed um, because they don't want it to come back and bite them in the butt. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Acceptance, 
respect from the system again a pushing point and again something that sounds nice in theory of course we would love to be able to get along with various types of providers um, to serve our communities and coexist in our community but the license does not automatically equal that as evident in licensed states and we can integrate in a way that is not via mandatory licensure utah is an example in which various types of midwives are illegal. You can access licensure via um, being a CPM if you'd like. Great, that's an option. And if you're not into that, fine, great, no problem. You can still be a midwife. You just have, you know, uh, different parameters that you can work within, but you're still a midwife. And it's voluntary to license, right? So it's like, hey, the option's here, but we are going to make room for lots of different types of options. And that way there can still be integration. And actually, you know, I've spoken to a midwife in Utah where like she is involved in the conversations with the licensed midwives and with EMTs. And they all have a system to work with each other. And it blows my mind because we live in a different world over here in Hawaii and um but to know that that is possible and actually a reality in somewhere in the world is really heartwarming and inspiring because we do have a lot of division uh that comes up from these conversations of you know women being pinned against each other and different midwives and just different community well we're all in the same community here uh, but we get, you know, end up having to prove who's better and who's, you know, who's more legit and more official and more valid and who's right, who's wrong. That's what this has really turned into. And it's uh, really heartbreaking because we are a minority. The amount of people that choose to birth at home, home regardless of the type of midwife they choose to work with, um, is really, you know, in Hawaii around 1%. So that 1% is being further divided <laughs> and segregated because of, you know, differences in belief systems is really just holding the community back. It's not helping us get ahead. Um, so, uh, I, and yeah. I think that, you know, that's back to that, like when they first created the CPM and wanting that recognition that we're valid and we're trained and then how even that has eroded over time of like okay we'll give you your cpm and we'll recognize you and then slowly that compromise has been leaning more and more and more towards medicalization of the practice that um that the compromise is you give up your belief system in order for us to accept who you are. And so now you have to train with all these crazy neonatal resuscitation guidelines, which would never happen at home anyways. Um, and, um, you know, all of these different things that they have put since the nineties, this is now, so now we're 30 years into CPM certificate and they say, okay, well, we'll accept you. And now we'll accept you if this, and now we'll accept you if this, and it has basically shifted what the idea of that certificate and that recognition would be. And then it's like the compromise has leaned more and more and more into the medical field so much so that in many States that are licensing midwives, you are not allowed to call yourself a midwife unless you have 
this certain kind of education or training. And so the medical world has basically commandeered um, the root term and has said that this is what a midwife is in modern day. And this is what people want and are seeking out when they look for a midwife. And, um, you know, my response to that has always been, well, that's because that's what, by and large, you have a captive audience of the majority of the people. And if that's what you tell them, then eventually they're going to believe it. Mm-hmm. And so that, and I, that's, again, like, if that's what people expect a midwife to be, then maybe we, maybe we do need to find a different terminology to to stand with our roots, <laughs> though it just is such a shame that um, that has become sort of the the sway or the coercion of of this is what people expect for midwifery, and um, and it's only been less than a hundred years than that. That's the expectation of what midwifery is. Oh yeah. No, we're close to a hundred. Really. Like 50 years or right. yeah. yeah. <laughs> like nurse midwives are started in the thirties. So. Right. So I've heard this go like on both sides, right? Some people pushing for the licensure here, um, have, you know, made the argument that midwives, when people hear that, they expect something very specific out of that, that that person has done a particular type of training and that that's what people expect a midwife to be. So we need to ensure that people's expectations are met uh, in order to, again, protect the consumers and their safety. Um, but on the flip side of that, is more what I've seen really is people expecting to hire a midwife in order to kind of escape the medical system and the way that paradigm works. And they think that by hiring a midwife, they will, you know, actually have more autonomy in their own care of their lives with their babies. And then often, I mean, I haven't seen it so here necessarily, but what I hear in the communities throughout the states, especially where they are, there are licensed midwives, is that, you know, they sometimes end up with a midwife that is way more medical than they realized and actually didn't respect somebody's autonomy, thought that they, as a midwife, had more authority over someone's care than the actual person. Um, so, and that, that's the scenario I'm more familiar with of people thinking that hiring a midwife actually means someone who's going to protect their autonomy. And then they actually kind of get duped and realize, oh, no, I've got this type of midwife who's licensed and more on the medical spectrum and actually needs, needs to protect her license. <laughs> bingo, more faithful to her license and to the accrediting boards and the government and the state than she really is to the woman. So that's the situation I'm not interested in um, falling into and and having that be a reality here in Hawaii is really something I'm going to work hard to avoid as far as um, having to be put in a position of choosing between your license or, you know, being with women, aka the definition of midwife, <laughs> you know. Um, so yeah, narrowing the scope of 
what is allowed once you're licensed is definitely on the cons <laughs> list, right? So we've seen it um, in California recently. I think last year they had to fight a bill that was trying to take away their right to legally serve women who are V-backing or having a vaginal birth after a cesarean. Uh, they were going to try to take away the right for midwives to serve those women. So they fought Even that and they shut have it a... down. Mm-hmm. Right, their yeah. numbers. I was going to say that even though the statistics show that you have an over 90% chance of successfully be backing at home, where hospital is in the 70% rate of having, which is still over 50%, but it's that's still a big gap of um, having successful successful VBAC. And to piggyback onto that of what does that mean for Hawaii specifically? Because in Hawaii, you um, the only way to have a VBAC is on a neighbor island is to either fly to Oahu and birth in one of our hospitals on Oahu or come in pushing where they can't deny you in the hospital on a neighbor island or choosing a home birth midwife. And um, this is purely speculation, but my thought process around this is that if they're not going to allow it in a hospital on a neighbor island, why would they allow it at home? Mm -hmm. And we'll see, and this will, we'll touch on this in a little bit, you know, also, but the whole reality of what's happening in Hawaii is that, you know, you can now apply for your license and nobody knows what their rules and regulations are, but you can sign up for it now. You can put your application in, but you don't know what your parameters are going to be when you serve women because the board has not created those rules and regulations yet. So people are just sort of blindly signing up for a license that they don't know are they going to be able to take VBACs? Are they going to be able to, like, what's the deal with 42 weeks? How long can someone have a rupture of membranes before they have to be put back in the hospital? You know, many, many different scenarios um, that folks are just kind of blindly lining up for, not really knowing what they're, what they're going to be able to do or not do. And... That's a curious, curious place to be. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. So it's, a, it's giving over. It's having a lot of faith in a system that doesn't have faith in you. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So uh, it's a slippery slope, right? It might start out seeming like a nice scope, but then, you know, gradually they take away your right to do this or that, which is really no one's call to make other than the person who's birthing. You know, I mean, I want to maybe give a random example for people to kind of contextualize. Well, what does this mean if it is in fact the state choosing the parameters of scope for a practitioner? What does that mean for the people on the receiving end of those services, right? Well, You've mentioned the 42-week thing a few times. So um, in California is an example where licensed midwives can not legally attend someone beyond 42 weeks, which is 
really a rather arbitrary number. You can dive into all that. It kind of varies between different states too, but that's a cutoff limit there. So what happens when some people do get close to 42 weeks in California? Well, I was able to kind of witness firsthand how much just anxiety, really needless anxiety starts creeping into these families' lives because they know that once they hit that mark, they will lose that midwifery care. No matter how sweet and genuine and amazing their midwife might be, she's got a license to kind of stand by, right? She signed up for a system and said that she, you know, she's going to keep her word to work within those parameters and that's what she believes in. So, I mean, if she serves you, she might lose that license and then lose the ability to serve the rest of the community, right? And obviously that's not great either, but that's kind of the position they're in. So most, of course, are not gonna just compromise their license. They do end up transferring care. So people trans, you know, they had, they went their whole pregnancy thinking they're gonna birth at home and then last minute, oh, just kidding. You're actually gonna have to go to the hospital. That is, a major shift and not easy for people to navigate so um so that's an example instead of letting it be that person's choice of like all right sure i see the risk that you're concerned about and i am going to choose to continue anyways or not um you know if someone's water is broken for x amount of time so there are cutoffs in certain states you know this person has to have had their baby within a certain amount of time with a licensed midwife at home Otherwise, you got to transport. So if your water breaks and you haven't had your baby within a certain amount of time, the state has already made the decision for you of when you're supposed to legally go in, as opposed to being like, okay, well, I hear your concerns. I see the risks. And I'm going to choose to continue anyways, if you want to, you know? So those are the kind of uh, not so straightforward situations that can come up that the government can have its uh, final word on, if you will, as opposed it to basically, in it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It basically whittles away the ability for true informed consent, you know, that, um, and that is back to body autonomy and, um, and autonomous practices within your home, within your family, um, and the choices you make. Um, you know, you can eat organic or not, you can, you know, I don't know, there's just all these parameters that are put on that um, disrupt. And and the 42 week thing is, is a really a stickler because it's pretty universal across um, most licensing situations. And being in a state that has been unlicensed for so long and the reality that, um, you know, it's not a lot of people that go over 42 weeks, but um, but folks do. And what happens also in other states is that in order to keep people out of going into the hospital, then they have to start doing more interventions. And so not just the anxiety and the stress of approaching that imaginary line, but also doing things that could potentially hospital again anyway. Sorry, it kind of glitched out for a second, but... Right, beyond the anxiety and the stress, it's also putting them in a situation. Just causing, putting them in a situation of interventions which which could be detrimental in the long run as well, you know. Um, 
instead of just waiting a couple more days. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So those are some of the reasons that we are not in favor of mandatory licensure. Uh, you know, I can be in favor of licensure, just not mandatory and only based on um, one type of learning and only one type of schooling, which is really, um, what's a good term for it? Well, it's really robotic. It's robotic. <laughs> it is just a monopoly of culture. It is, you know, cultural hegemony. You know, one culture dominates the other. Um, it's the colonization issue, right? All your gods, all your dances, all your things are illegal, invalid, incorrect, improper. Ours is the proper way, the best way, the only valid way, actually the only legal way to do it. Um, So stop your nonsense and come on board with our way. So that's the issue. It's the mandatory thing. (laughs) I haven't made that clear enough. If we could shift that, that'd be great. Um, So Jamie mentioned that there is room for growth in that bill that has passed um, that, you know, it includes the Hawaii Home Birth Task Force that has been um, asked to define birth attendants that are not part of the CPM and licensure category. So uh, there is a huge, a pretty decent document that I'll actually include somewhere at the end of this podcast in the notes somewhere for you to see that also has uh, the home birth statistics uh, of Hawaii because this whole bill this whole situation was pushed via not well without having any information of what is actually happening in Hawaii but it was framed in a way that made it seem like it was this major health crisis that you know moms and babies are just being assaulted by all these rogue midwives and they're having terrible outcomes and there was a lot of lies and just incorrect framing of the home birth uh, situation or just status in Hawaii. That's really what pushed this forward. So we want to kind of share with you some of the statistics that are came about after the task force went ahead and tried to collect all of those and then we can also maybe take a moment to address some of the um, maybe lies and <laughs> misinformations that were shared in order to push the bill to maybe get some clarity for people. Because if you just heard what the uh, news channel and a few sources were saying, you would really think like, oh my goodness, yes, this is terrible. We definitely need to license these midwives so we can have better outcomes because apparently we're having awful outcomes but there are 365 days in a year and there are somewhere around 300 births, home births in Hawaii in a year. Yeah, there's a really good, um, in the task force uh, report, actually there's it, it, the statistics are listed and then it actually is really great um, how it's written that um, it does speak to the fact that um, hospital is, is, deals with all births, right? And home birth is more commonly low risk with healthy pregnancies. So they do speak to the fact that like some of the numbers are, are different because of that, 
right? But um, it also says in here that comparative data from both Department of Health and Hawaii Home Birth Collective clearly shows that home to hospital transfers with significant mortality or morbidity consequences for mother and or infant are exceedingly rare and do not occur daily in Hawaii hospitals. Given the data suggestive comments such as the following are extremely misleading and lend consumers false impressions which can lead to harm. So the 2019 Journal of the Hawaii House of Representatives reported floor comments that reflected a need for data transparency and longitudinal data reporting. The quote is, each year we hear stories why regulation is so needed in Hawaii. We may not have hard stats or figures, but unfortunately the stories about what is happening in our communities is getting worse and worse. The Hawaii section of the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecologists made this bill a top priority because the cases that they see every day in our hospitals. So, so we have about 300 births per year out of hospital, and we know that not all of them are transported. In fact, um, it shows um, in the statistics about um, planned and transport. So. Um, so in 2017, we had 302, and in 2018, we had 324 um, home deliveries. And um, in 2017, we had four babies transferred, and in 2018, we had six. So, um, so that's pretty amazing, and it's a pretty low number. That's 1.3% and 1.8% for transfers of care. Um, and then- Which aren't the, all necessarily emergent either. That includes even people that want to- That's all. Justice. Yeah, just everything. They're tired. They want to go in, transfers. whatever. Yeah, yeah exactly. And, and NICU um, admissions for babies in 2017, there were three and that's 1%. And in 2018, there were four, which is one point. 3%. So that's pretty low numbers. Um, so every day seems like maybe a total of a, of a week's worth. <laughs> right. And this was said on the floor. Over two years. <laughs> Over two years. Yeah. And yet there were representatives in Hawaii who said that, you know, shared that claim as a reason that we and need sensationalized yeah stories um turn the stories um into very sensationalized situations and flat out um misleading and and true lies about birth outcomes and that uh i think is is a really disappointing that we have had legislation passed based on um, one sensationalized story and, um, you know, always and never statements. <laughs> yeah, I want to give a shout out to Senator Ward <laughs> because he's the minority rep here in Hawaii and he was almost the only one that would ever kind of pause 
the hearings or at the end where they're like, does anyone have questions? He was almost the only one that I can really remember who always took a moment to try to ask questions and really make sense of this for himself and not just get carried away by the, you know, heavily emotional, sensationalized stories that were used to push the the licensure. And he would, he often said, you know, it's like, well, where are the numbers? You know, it's like, I hear these stories, I hear anecdotal stories, but we could go back and forth all day with everyone's anecdotal stories. That's not what we base laws on. We, where are the numbers that show what's actually going on? And if we don't have those, then we can't pass this bill if we don't know what's going on. <laughs> we, we don't know what we're talking about then. And we don't have a reason to implement something like this, which is mandatory and claiming that it's actually going to improve outcomes. How do we know if we're gonna improve outcomes if we don't know what the outcomes are? So yeah, remember the notes, the numbers that Jamie just shared are numbers that the home birth task force sought out to find after the bill had been passed. Um, and that was just because, you know, people did want the numbers and we didn't have any, so they were figured out and they reflected, um, you know, something that was actually, you know, outcomes in Hawaii for home birth are actually way better than most people in the news and um, the representatives really made it out to seem. So, yeah, so that has been bunked. <laughs> And so that also leads us to what is next for Hawaii and our diversity of midwives, because as we all know that um, diversity actually is a, is a beneficial thing. Um, it, I, I touched on this with a conversation of Danielle, with Daniela last week about, you know, how diversity actually sparks more curiosity and um, leads the pathway to exploring more possibilities and inspiration versus sort of saying that this is the way, this is the only way, and don't be curious about it anymore because this is how it is. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we have this great diverse um, group of midwives on all of our islands. And um, with this law passed, it actually outlawed um, one half to two thirds of the practicing midwives um, on our islands. And that is really such a bummer um, on so many levels. And so they've created this task force in order to really crunch numbers and look at it and see, do we have a true health crisis? And so the task force came and presented their information this year um, asking for this exemption uh, for maybe having a registry of midwives or at least not having mandated licensure. And it was the task force's, it, it is written in the law that the task force's duty is to define these other kinds of midwives and find a place for them within the system. And that is what they did in addition to debunking many of the sensationalized stories or the skewed information. And it was immediately shut down by the lawmaker who pushed the bill in the first place and has been pushing the bill for um, 
several years, um, she, she shut down the information that the, um, that the task force had set forth and Department of Health, um, Department of Consumer um, Commerce Affairs, um, Hawaii Home Birth Task Force, Hawaii Association of Healthcare Providers, um, all of these different folks had come together and had made the recommendation that licensure should be optional. Um, and that was told, just instantly shut down at the very first hearing. Yeah. Even we, though the law stated that that's what that was their job to do. <laughs> right. And the response from this representative or senator, the senator? Yeah. Right. Senator that her, yeah, the response when she shut it down was she pretty much told us that it was just too premature. The bill had just passed, so they needed to see how it's going to go once it starts being implemented before they can really decide to make any changes to it which it seemed pretty clear to me that that was always her stance that she never really planned to uh, change anything right away and it kind of felt like a little game and that was really heartbreaking but also a reality check but man, well and I think yeah, yeah. That even that to like recognize that for f many years we've been asking for this task force before the law passed so we wouldn't prematurely create a law that is based on misinformation. Um, a task force after the very first presentation of a version of this bill six years ago by um, our now lieutenant governor, when the 300 families showed up was that this was a very complicated scenario and that we really did need to gather statistics and we really did need to because the community is not for this mandatory licensure and I think that that senator at the time was very shocked by the people pouring out of everywhere saying no um and then every year when they would bring the bill up we would ask for the task force we would ask the top for the task force and so the fact that the task force got put into this bill is really great but the bill was essentially passed prematurely the task force study should have by and large happened before they created a mandatory licensing because now we have just a few years which has been worked into this bill and we're very grateful for that we now have this task force and we have the statistics but now we have to figure out a way to integrate that information into a bill that has essentially outlawed the majority of hawaii's midwives by 2023 Right. So do you happen to have any update on the home birth task force and as far as meetings? And I mean, I can only imagine that they do plan to meet to eventually have something ready for next year's um, something to present to the legislators. Right. And many of the folks involved in the task force, um, it was officially dissolved in January of 2020, but many of the folks 
um, who were participants in it, including the Department of Health and including DCCA, were willing to actually continue to meet to try to have conversations with EMT and to try to have conversations with um, with Papaola Lokahi, which is the um, Hawaiian chapter um, for um, Hawaiian affairs. And there were many um, folks who wanted to keep the conversation going because they felt like it was valid. And they also were very, I think, shocked and disappointed by the fact that, you know, this was a state mandated situation. And it was, it, they, we've done a lot of work and spent a lot of time in meetings and um, email exchanges and trying to build this bridge and build this relationship. And I think that they, everyone sort of felt like it was a slap in the face that it was just for what? So it could just instantly get shut down and that's back to you speaking about the game or whatever. So everyone decided that they were gonna continue to meet and we met um, for a couple more months until COVID happened. <laughs> Right. So meetings have been on pause, but I'm sure once meetings have been on pause, they'll want to. And so, so now we're in a place where, um, we're having a new election. And so there will be new people voting in and out of office. And the next step is to, um, lobby for the task force recommendations to be implemented and put into place as as stated that this law is how it is to unfold so we have to lobby for the recommendations um, for our new um, legislators coming in and it needs to come from many angles it needs to come um, largely organizations seem to have a big sway even if they're an organization of 10 people there is something about having organizations on the on um, the side of the people. Um, and, but I also feel like it is the legislative duty, the legislators duties to actually be, um, stand with the people mm. <laughs> and the people are saying, no, the people are saying that, that, that they don't want, um, mandatory licensure. And so, um, the community, I think, needs to once again get access to these task force recommendations, and they need to educate and inform their um, their representatives and their senators, because we are going to try to push for a resolution on this subject that, um, you know, the statistics show that with our large, diverse group of unregulated um, midwives who aren't covered by insurance and don't have access to X, Y, and Z and whatnot, that, um, that we can give those people what they want. We can give those folks their insurance and their, if that's what they, and, and give them emergency medications and give them that licensure, but we can also respect the diversity of the culture that we have in midwifery practices and we can stand with autonomous practices with our community members. Yeah, so stay tuned in our podcast, perhaps, for updates on as that starts to unfold and things are opening up again and we need to become more active with this. But this is one way for us to be active is keeping the conversation alive with you guys. This is why we're doing this and taking the time to re-record this episode as many times as we have because <laughs> um, it, it matters a lot and we need the collective to, you know, stand up and 
um, work together. So another place that you can kind of keep track of over time is Hawaii Home Birth Collective website, which is, I think, hihbc.com or org. O-R-G. Yeah. Um, and you can, you know, at the moment, there isn't any recent updates other than what we've shared, but there will be as, you know, things start unfolding. So that's another place to keep your eye on. And yeah, I have a, another point I wanted to kind of make sure I address, and it's one that people often say in response to midwifery licensure, and it's, you know, we license barbers, and we license plumbers, and we license, right, the people that make our nails, and you know, there's licenses for all those things. And why wouldn't we license midwives? Isn't it a no-brainer that they need licenses? And well, my response to that is just reflect back on everything we've kind of talked about in this episode. And I think one point that we've kind of centered here is personal autonomy and how that goes out the window once somebody else is designated as the authoritative agent in birth and maternal care. So that's the issue with the licensure, particularly mandatory. So that's that. And why. you can hire an unlicensed plumber and you can hire someone to do your nails and you can hire whomever you want to mow your lawn and all of those things. You still, you can choose someone with a license or you can choose someone without a license. Um, and so those are some of those sticky situations too, where it's, it's okay that it's out there and it's also okay if it's not what you choose. And I, I actually was kind of thinking about with what's going on in the world and the COVID and the mask situation, right? Is that, you know, um, People are wearing masks because they're trying to be mindful of other people. Maybe you're not sick, but you don't know if the person behind you is sick in the line or you don't know if, you know, and so we do these things to sort of like have a general, um, a general like thought process about something beyond us. And I think it's kind of, along the lines of, of this too, is that, you know, like I can have my rules in place for me and feel good for about that, but I don't have to take away your right to do what you want to do. Exactly. I mean, that's like the, epi- like the, folk- the focal point of feminism, I think is right. It's body autonomy, my body, my choice. So I invite our listeners to see this conversation as an extension of that. Your personal choices are really besides the point. Your personal preferences are really not, they don't really matter in the conversation. It's people's rights to choose for themselves, period, for any topic. So yeah, bringing it to that. And 
I think I covered everything I wanted to cover today. Is there anything mm -hmm. else you want to make sure we engage with? No, I think that that is sort of, you know, I mean, it's the, the conversation will keep rolling. Um, I think we'll have many conversations in the future about um, why people might not want to um, license and um, the body autonomy things and all of that. I think that's a really huge conversation. Um, and I, but I think that the main thing today was to talk about um, what's happening here and what's happening here right now. Um, and to remember that there are definitely people who are getting in line for something that they have no idea what the outcome is going to be. And I think that's very interesting. Again, I just have to touch on that again, because it's kind of mind blowing to me that we're just that people are just blindly um, handing over or, or giving up something and they don't even know what they're giving up in order to gain sort of this whatever recognition of their education or whatnot so right yeah that's the mystery we don't know without knowing how back. they can serve their population right so we will definitely instead of standing with women instead of standing up and fighting for their right. yeah so this or is waiting definitely... and watching to see what the rules are right right we don't know that yet so we soon will and you'll you listeners will definitely get that update soon enough whenever we have it as far as what is licensure in hawaii about and what is the other options and the other midwifery uh, types in Hawaii. And what does that look like? It's an unfolding conversation. It is never ending. So this episode is just the beginning where we get to lay down some groundwork with you guys, get the basics down and get you all up to speed, keep the conversation alive with our community here. And we will grow from here and have more conversations. So, yeah, and you're welcome to message us again at our email, womanonfirepodcast at gmail.com. You know, email questions, thoughts, your stories and perspectives. And How about your licensed or unlicensed midwife and why you mm -hmm. chose that? And <laughs> yeah. Um, or how that may or may not affect your preferences or choices here in Hawaii in the future. Um, you know, we really do want to share stories. We want to have guests. We want to have, um, you know, this is a podcast for the people. And so we, we want to hold that space for folks. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, we are really happy to be here with you guys again, super dedicated to these conversations. And I guess the last thing I really want to throw out there is we really do create this and choose to engage with this conversation publicly, uh, from a place of love and deep care and respect for each other and our community members. We are very much so interested in creating bridges and less walls and, you know, dissolving some of the walls that are put in place. And we really hope to grow stronger as a collective 
supporting each other, uplifting each other, even amongst our differences. So yeah, I had my paradigm shift with midwifery licensure, understanding and perspectives and, you know, it, you know, I share with you guys and maybe you find a paradigm shift too. Maybe you don't, but I hope that we can still hear each other out on our different perspectives, regardless of how different they may be. Yeah. Honor the truth within ourselves and within each other. Totally. Absolutely. Well, thank you guys. Thank you, Jamie. And look forward to next thank time. Thank you. And aloha. Aloha. <laughs>